You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes The Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Dan Illich is one of Australia's most prolific comedic voices. His incisive satirical take on current affairs has garnered attention and followers around the world. As funny as he is thought-provoking, Dan reigns supreme as Australia's leading investigative humorist. So Dan, welcome to Five of My Life, mate. Oh, look, uh, look, I wish it was 15. Um, You know, it was really hard to whittle it down to five, but you know, we got there, we got there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm so uh, looking forward to this, and I have really enjoyed uh, researching you uh, and your choices, mate. Oh, wow. Feels, feels, this feels like a KGB interview. I feel like well, I'm about to um, uh, be thrown in jail for life. We're going to go into all the dark corners, matey. But we're starting, as is traditional, uh, with the film on Five in My Life. Uh, and you have chosen the musical comedy classic from the start of the 80s, The Blues Brothers. Oh, the Blues Brothers. It is an incredible film, so funny, so brilliant, and it feels just like this perfect mix of music, culture, sketch comedy, and uh, and this rollicking tale. Uh, the characters in it are just unbelievable. So it's a, it's a story of two guys trying to raise money for the orphanage where they grew up, <laughs> and they put their band, their blues band, back together, and they have to go on a journey where they effect- effectively just go around asking people to come and play in a band with them. And it's a... It's just so funny and wonderful, um, and it has this amazing climax. I believe for a long time it was the the film with the most car crashes in in it, the most cars destroyed for a film. Um, yeah, I just love that film. It's it's it made me want to do comedy. It made me want to become a filmmaker. Just one of those great comedy films that I had on VHS, recorded off the telly, and it was pretty much worn out by the time I left home. And when did you first see it? How old were you? Maybe 10 uh, or maybe younger, maybe 8. Uh, it came out in, I think, 86. I could be wrong. It uh, feels like it came out in the 80s. I think what was interesting was that my brothers were into it and when CD players made their way throughout the world in the late 80s, it, that was a big deal to go from a record player to a CD player, according to my father. Uh, and the first CD we had was the Blues Brothers CD, motion picture soundtrack. And we played it on our Amstrad CD player on loop because it was the only one we had. And it really took you there. The, the, the soundtrack to that motion picture took you to those gigs, took you to that that point in time. And it became the soundtrack of a lot of our road trips when we could put a CD player in the car. Uh, and it became a soundtrack of just kind of booting around life growing up. Yeah, so The Blues Brothers was just this phenomenal film. I I love it so much. My One of my best friends, Kale, 
He's Canadian. He's an improviser. He has a tattoo of Jake and Elwood Blues on his chest. Uh, he grew up in Toronto, so naturally has an affinity with um, with Dan Aykroyd. And I just love that. When I was a kid in year, year 10, uh, my friend Nathan and I, we learnt the dance to Shake Your Tail Feather, the one they do in the film. And we practised it and practised it. And at our year 10 formal or like social, we, we danced in front of the entire school. <laughs> And we won the best prize for the best uh, for the best dance, but you know, hey, we also organised the dance, so it was a little, you know, it was a little, co- you know, conflict of interest there. But we did put on a really good show for the school. It, it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> it's been downhill ever since. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I love the fact that that film, which I, I agree, it's just sensational. It's, it's quite touching as well, bizarrely, amongst all the all the slapstick and whatever. Is that is based on a recurring SNL sketch? And it made me want to ask, what on earth is the Cumberland Gang Show? Oh well, Cumberland Gang Show is very different to SNL. It's not. It's uh, it's more like arts adjacent. It's uh, <laughs> but 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 you did that. That that's where you started. That's where I started the, out on yeah. stage. Yeah, as a kid. So when I was like ten years old, I I joined the Cumberland Gang Show. I was a scout. Um, this, the Cumberland. Gang oh, it's, show, just, it's a scout it's thing. A scout and ah. guide. It's a scout and guide show. Gang shows are are scout and a scout and guide. Uh, variety shows. Well, why is that not in the name? I, 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 there you go. Or maybe it's not not in the name on purpose. Well, I mean, they've been going for they've been going for such a long time. You know, since the forties, like Ralph Reader um, started the gang shows a long time ago. So the you know, so many other folks have gone through gang show too. Um, many of those Footlights folks were gang show people. Goon show people were gang show people. Monty Python people were gang show people. So gang show is a like a like a very formative. Um, part of my life when it came when it comes to not only performing but also managing teams and doing big projects with huge teams out of sheer sweat and um, will um, because it's all you know it's all volunteer you've got all these you've got 150 kids on stage 12 nights a week um, uh, 12 shows a week and it's phenomenal like we rehearse for six months pull together you know, mums and dads to build sets and stitch costumes and and pull in uh, mums and dads to do lighting and and uh, theatre work as well. So it's it's such a, a huge volunteer organisation. It's such a special part of um, of Australian theatre culture uh, and my own up- upbringing. It was amazing. One of the happiest days of my life was getting a phone call from. Uh, Rob Lang, the then director of Cumberland Gang Show, I was 14 years old. I'd been in the show about three years. And he said, hey, would you like to come and come on board and become uh, an associate, uh, a, an assistant producer on, on the on the production team? And I said, yeah. I was like 14. I was like, like <laughs> yeah, I made it. I'm like, I'm the boss of the gang show. It was fantastic. And that was a real gateway drug to not only creativity but also learning how to do teamwork and learning how to manage um, groups of people when I was a real youngster. So I am forever in debt to Gang Show for those formative years of not only performing and learning how to be a ham on the stage or feeling confident in front of strangers, but also, you know, that teamwork element is a real is a real big thing that I absolutely love. Um, gang show in terms of a show, it's pretty good. You know, it's there for the it's there for the parents of the kids. You know, it's there. It's like a rockstead for, for scouts. It's um it's very daggy, uh, it's very hammy. Um, I certainly learnt all the wrong things when it comes to performing on stage, <laughs> which I had to undo uh, after years of doing gang show. 
it's certainly it's a very special it's a very special uh, cultural icon of of Western Sydney Cumberland Gang Show. Oh, I'm so glad I asked you. I, I, I didn't know any of those things. And is it still going? Yeah, it's it's still going. I think um, they just had their 50th anniversary last year. Oh, gee, I was in it for 11 years, 11 of those 50 years. Gang Show will be around for years as long as people want to want to see it be around. And it's, um, yeah, it's very special. Scouts and guides are such special organisations. And I think particularly in a world where there's uh, so much digital technology to actually do things in real life, face to face, and go on adventures and and learn a lot of skills. And you know, those organisations are so precious. Where I think we're so lucky to have them. We're moving to the end of the eighties uh, for your second <laughs> choice, and you have chosen. I've got a copy of it here. You absolute bastard! It's eight hundred pages oh, long. Do you, do you read and consume <laughs> I, all these things? Every what, single bloody book. Do you Could really? you have chosen a longer one, man? Um, uh, you have chosen, which which is, I suppose, obvious given your political leanings, Ronald Reagan's, the sequel to Ronald Reagan's favourite book. They, <laughs> is it really? What was Ronald Reagan's favourite book? <laughs> the Hunt for the Red October. Oh, great. And the yeah. sequel to The Hunt for the Red October is Cardinal of the Kremlin, Tom oh. Clancy, 1988. Um, explain yourself, Dan. Oh, look, as a kid growing up, I loved Tom Clancy. So when I was kind of moving from... Um, primary school to high school I started reading big books my brother was in the army so he had a couple of little Tom Clancy books lying around um, he was much older than me and so I started picking them up and reading them I started off with Patriot Games and I was like this is the best then I run for Red October I'm like this is so much better than the movie and then Cardinal of the Kremlin was by by far my favourite. It, it, it brought in a whole bunch of interesting things like Star Wars programs and and real spycraft between West and East. And one of the favourite things is there is um, there's a swear word. It's Yob um, mat, which means fuck your mother uh, in <laughs> Russian. And if I learned one thing from Cardinal of the Kremlin, it was Yob mat. And when you're 15, there is no better thing to learn than a swear word in Russian. Uh, but one of the things that Cardinal the Kremlin really did was, or rather Tom Clancy's novels as a whole, because I was such a Clancy, Clancy fan back when I was 15, 16, was like it really helped with my writing. I started imitating him as a writer. And I remember for English, when was the Atlanta Olympics? 1996. Yeah, so around 1996, there was the bombing of the Atlanta Olympics. Someone let off a, a, a pipe bomb in a park. And I wrote like a spy thriller opener to that bombing um, for English class. And my then teacher, Mr. McGee, threw it back on my table and said, you didn't write this. And I thought, yes, I've, I've nailed it. I'm going to leave school and become a become a Cold War fiction writer. This is this is what I wanted. I was like, I was just mimicking the style of Tom Clancy, and it made me so excited that um, the English teacher rejected it because he thought I copied it from somewhere, or I thought it was so cool. So yeah, no, kind of like something about Tom Clancy novels um, really uh, awakens the inner Republican, the inner American <laughs> patriot that I have inside of me. Yeah. <laughs> Your third choice on uh, Find My Life, just fabulous. And, and it, it, at the age of 60, I am constantly made aware of how little I know. So you are talking to somebody who had never heard of LCD sound system. Get out of town. What are you talking about? Never heard of them. Ne ne never heard a, a note of their music. Didn't know anything about them. And you've chosen the 2007 song, Someone 
great. Uh, a number of people uh, maintain is the best song ever written about loss. That song really, really touches people. But I want to hear why why you chose it on Fire Below. It's an absolute banger, right? It's got this great opener. It takes forever to get to the lyrics. And as a younger man, I thought it was initially about losing a partner, losing a love, losing unrequited love. Uh, but then I was listening to it on a road trip in throughout Tasmania. So I heard it come on my iPod at the time as I was driving through Tasmania in the middle of a poppy field and I just pulled over to listen to it because it moves me that song so much and I just looked up what it was about and sitting in the middle of this poppy field in Tasmania listening to some someone great the story of it really kicked me in the guts it's about James Murphy the author the singer dealing with the loss of his trusted confident coach and psychiatrist and every time I hear it now I feel profound loss for the support that James had from this guy and uh, from his friend and someone who he grew extremely close with to be someone who you've put all of your darkest deepest secrets in into the brain of and who's helped you unplug roadblocks in the way of your life and who's helped you navigate the the trickiness that it is to be an artist not just you know in new york city but anywhere man just just a gripping sad song <laughs> and i hope they played at my funeral when i die <laughs> <laughs> There's an amazing lyric in it um, um, that I found. Uh, the worst is all the lovely weather. I'm stunned it's not raining. And, and my mum passed away recently, but it is quite instructive when something, uh, when you are dealing with something personally. Yeah. You know, the buses still run. Yeah. yeah, I mean, people are still shopping in Coles. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's your drama. It's not the world's drama. You, you know, the tide goes in, the tide goes out. So you've lost your therapist, best friend, mate, and, you, and it's a lovely sunny day and people are heading off to the beach with a towel under their arm. That's it, yeah. The line that gets me in it is something like, um, we used to be able to talk about it, but now that's the problem. And I was just like, fuck. That. He wants to talk about him, his his he, death, but you're dead. Talk, yeah, he wants to talk about his his uh, therapist's death, but he can't. You know, fuck that. Just, that gets me. <laughs> you know, just so. I even mean, now I'm like, you know, welling up. It's just a beautiful song. Death. Uh, how, how how are you going with that? What's your attitude? Sweep it under the carpet. Good. I'm um, pretty good. Not dead yet. So pretty happy. <laughs> pretty happy. No, you know, I I think about mortality a lot with the kind of work I do. I'm like, I I think I I run at such a pace because I don't want to. Uh, miss an opportunity to make something good so there's that 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 often drives me i think uh, tim minchin had a point about having uh, a skull on his desk to remind him of his own mortality yeah. <laughs> so so that's why he looks at that skull and is so prolific like he's like fuck i gotta do all this shit before i die um and tim's you know a fascinating peer of mine you know it's it's amazing I'm like jesus like yeah, he he does work hard. <laughs> yeah, I'm, oh, look, I'm okay with death. I had a friend pass away um, this year through uh, self harm, and it was pretty um, a pretty sad experience. Um, yeah, 
But, you know, his memorial was one of the best memorials I'd ever been to. It was just spectacular. He's a he's a filmmaker, producer kind of person and um, naturally the team that put together his memorial were all of his incredible filmmaker producer friends and they really produced the shit out of it and it was, it was just this beautiful moment yeah see some of the most uh, i mean it seems obvious to say some of the most incredible moving occasions i have been to are funerals because it you know it strips away the bullshit doesn't it really it really does yeah and you know it was so nice to see so many of my friends and colleagues there and we've all worked together for 20 30 years and it's so nice to see them all in one room it's just a shame we had to all get together in a place like this glenn robbins you know made the observation to me he's like i oh, know isn't it it's so weird that you know we don't often get together like this as a community of comedians and it's such a shame we have to do it in a place like this but at the same time you know that was a really special day so um you know it's either the logies or someone's wake that's when we're all getting together <laughs> but i think glenn's right you know we need to find ways to kind of connect with each other that aren't those occasions I, I tell you, one of the things that that i found and i really enjoyed the, the preparation for this is accessing your work is is incredibly easy and enjoyable because it's out there and it's good but finding out anything about you I, I found impossible apart from you're lovable and nice and talented but but i i don't really know put that on the headstone buddy we're done yeah <laughs> is, is that a policy you you no, I'm pretty. I mean, I'm pretty open with my family life and other stuff. Um, yeah, I've done. Uh, I talk about you know my parents and growing up a lot. And oh, I love the video with your mum. Uh, yeah. that, uh, honestly, honestly, that I just adore that. Oh yeah, it's just so lovely. Seven thirty. Yeah, that is a great, great story that Mon Shafter did. Um, called the two of us with me and my mother, and that was really, really great fun. The, the love just oh, just comes out of the screen. Just it fantastic. Was, it was so brilliant, like not long after that, um, being able to nominate my mum for uh, Senior Citizen of the Year at the Parramatta City Council Awards, and she, she won it, and that was a real big moment for mum. You know, as someone growing up in Parramatta and uh, Parramatta City Council um, area, it was really fun to kind of... Um, see mum rewarded for the years of sacrifice she she put in with not only raising us as kids but looking after my my dad who's quadriplegic so yeah that was really cool yeah lovely Uh, we're moving to your fourth choice on Five of My Life, uh, and you have chosen Park City in USA. <laughs> if you could, before you tell us why, if you could um, explain where it is more specifically and, and describe it a bit, and then tell us why you've chosen it, Dan. Park City is an incredible ski town in the middle of Utah. It is about 40 k's north of Salt Lake City, and it is also was the home to the Salt Lake City Winter Olympic Games. And as a kid, the Sydney Olympics was a major thing in my life. It was from 1993 onwards, I was focused on getting a job at the Sydney Olympics. So I wanted to be a part of the Games, got to be a part of this thing that's coming to our city. So for seven years, I tried to figure out how to get you know, into the Games. And I, I went, for a, went for a gig as a medal holder. Um, once again, through scouts, uh, I was like going to dress up my scout uniform and hold medals, but they deemed me not worthy enough to hand out medals. So <laughs> I didn't do I didn't get that gig. But what I did find was a great route to 
my other love, which is media and, and, and arts, uh, got a volunteer role at the Sydney Games as a photo assistant uh, at the main press centre. And I got to work with some of the world's best photographers running the photo desk at the, at the main press centre in Sydney. So one of my major roles, Nigel, was to take a cart throughout the main press centre and collect all the effluent from the photo processing labs from all the major media organisations in Australia. Oh, in the world. Um, I'll be knocking on their door, collecting their <laughs> collecting their chemicals and taking it back for processing. <laughs> but also one of the major privileges of a position like that is being able to sit in photo position. So I got to go to the basketball in the photo position. I got to sit in the photo position for the opening ceremony and closing ceremony of the Sydney Olympics. And got to go all these all these amazing parties and hang out with these journalists and and, and it was the best fun I had. I'd, I'd just turned 18. And one time we're at the Pinebush Bay Brewery. I don't know why I'm telling you this story. And I found a a, a token for Orca, um, the Olympic, uh, I think, uh, Roads and Construction Authority, and a token on the ground that said Orca, one free drink. And it was just on it was just on white paper, Nigel. So I walked two kilometres back to the main press centre, put it on the photocopier, and made sheets of this <laughs> of this token, cut them up. And walked the back to the Bush Bay Brewery underneath the Novotel, handed out to all my friends who were also volunteers. And we were drinking ourselves silly. One of my other favourite moments of, the, of those games was drinking with the Hungarian goalball team. Goalball is a sport. It's like soccer for blind people. They throw around a ball with a bell in it. And, um, and, uh, and these guys were telling us the story of how to pick up women. It stuck stuck in my brain as one of the things they taught me, which was um, the song <laughs> that they used to woo women, which was which is she is beautiful, she is beautiful, her eyes are blue, she is beautiful. And they said, oh, you know, we could go bono, which means brown. And I was like, <laughs> you guys are blind. How do you know? <laughs> What eye she has? She said, yeah, we ask. <laughs> <laughs> they can't see a thing. They can't see a thing. They're, well, they might say have port, like, you know, variance in, in blindness. But the captain says, all right, we're going to get a drink. And they all stand up. They all move. They all turn to the right. They all put their hand on the person in front of them and they conga line to the bar so they're safe and they all get a beer and they conga line back. It was so funny to be drinking with, you know, blind people getting blind and when they got to the bar that was the blind leading the blind to get blinder. It was amazing. Just so great. So from that moment on, I really wanted to try and get a job at the Salt Lake Games. So I maintained friendships with folks who were going to be running Salt Lake Games and um, and I joined the Work USA program that the United States was running for, for students to go and work in the USA. I got a job at the Stein Erickson Lodge um, as a ski locker room attendant, serving celebrities like the Olsen twins. I put their boots on. I, I cleaned the skis of Hans Zimmer. I, I met Dennis Tito, first uh, you know, a tour, astronaut tourist in space. And I was introduced to the Sundance Film Festival. My most cherished is Robin Williams on the, photo, on the, red, on the red carpet for one hour photo. We had this great moment of comedy together, um, me and Robin Williams. And that was just shot on this this video camera and he was so generous he came up and you know played with me and thought I was from New Zealand and we had this fun moment and as a kid that was I was just absolutely in heaven and I was like hooked on this kind of a magical place called Park City where celebrities would come and show their films and go skiing and, and stuff like that 
the Olympics for me were, were a real special moment and Park City is a really special place and I returned to Park City for many years, like every second year after that to go to Sundance and to hang out and go skiing and um, hang out with my friends who I made over that over that period and um, ah, yeah, just just incredible stories. Well, listen, we're staying in uh, the American theme for your fifth and last choice on Five of My Life because you have got, and I think you're going to produce it now, you angel. Are you rustling? Oh, my God, here it comes. You have chosen on Five of My Life uh, as your possession a letter from President Bill Clinton to you. Yeah, that's right. Well, like, I'm a big American file. I love America. America is like my... You, you wouldn't know, mate. <laughs> uh, yeah, even now, when it comes to picking between China and America, I'm, mm. I'm all in. I'm all in in the USA. You're hearing this, NSA? You're getting mm. this? Yeah, uh, I love America so much. It's been so good to me, and it's been a wonderful playground to, to, to kind of work and play in over the last um, 15 years. But it, it sparked early. You know, pop, soft, cult, soft power is such a powerful thing for a young kid to kind of consume. You don't understand what's happening to you. Um, when your mind's being formed by popular culture early on. But I loved um, all things America. The pageantry of um, the pageantry of the presidency was so special. And when President Bill Clinton <laughs> was coming to uh, Australia as president uh, in, I think, 2000, oh, 1996, yeah, 1996, I was turning 15 at the time. Um, and so I, uh, I invited... I, what I did was I was like, I'm going to invite Bill Clinton to my 15th birthday and maybe Bill Clinton might turn up to my family dinner at my 15th birthday. This will be very exciting. So I wrote out a letter pretending to be an MP. I made like a fake MP headline, uh, he, uh, 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 letterhead uh, in MS Paint. Um, it was like Dan Illich, MP. <laughs> it looks so shit, probably. I can't remember. And halfway through, I was like, you may uh, figure out by now I'm not an MP. Um, <laughs> I'm turning 15. Uh, please come to uh, La Botte Italian Restaurant at Carlingford uh, to celebrate my 15th birthday. It would You, you and Mrs. Clinton would be very welcome. Um, and I faxed it from my dad's fax machine to the Intercontinental Hotel uh, where he was staying. And I never heard from it again. And on at my birthday dinner, I was uh, a bit glum, um, Nigel. I was sitting there turning 15, wondering, where the fuck is President Clinton? <laughs> and I didn't think about it after that, that moment uh, until Christmas when around Christmas time, all the, all the family was home, including my, my eldest brother who's in the army. He was getting the letters from the mailbox at the front of the driveway. And he burst through the door and was like, Dan, you got a fucking letter from the White House. <laughs> I was like, what? He said, yeah, you got to fucking open it right now. And I'm like, no, no, I'll open it in my own time. And he's like, no, you open it now. And he literally picked me up and put me on the kitchen table and thrusted the envelope in front of me. Here's the envelope here. Um, um, I'm looking at this <laughs> fan. The White House, Daniel Illich, seven... <laughs> Brilliant. Airmail, do not bend. Brilliant. <laughs> it's currently got a bend in it. It's all ripped. Um, and I opened it up and there was a letter from Bill Clinton. And uh, much to my um, the chagrin of my brother who was in the in the army. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm looking at this framed letter now. Oh, this is wonderful. Dear Daniel, thank you so much for your kind message, you nutter. <laughs> <laughs> do you want me to, I can read it in the voice if you like. Yeah, do it. I love it. Dear Daniel. Thank you so much for your kind message. 
I greatly enjoyed my trip to Australia. I've been touched by the many expressions of support and encouragement I've received from people everywhere who care deeply about the future of our world. I'm sorry I was unable to help celebrate your birthday, but Mrs. Clinton joins me in sending out best wishes and much future success and happiness. Sincerely, Bill Clinton, December 10, 1996. I love it. I mean, th- th- there's so many questions. That the first question I would ask you, mate, is is you clearly like a good time and you like a good laugh, but your work always seems to have a a higher purpose. You you seem to be a a fellow that would like to try and push the peanut forward and make the world slightly better. I remember talking to a, a London stand-up who said the great thing about comedy is you, you don't need to be fair or accurate. You just need to go for the laugh. And you go, well, that, that's true to one extent. But it seems like, you know, all your climate stuff and everything else is, is not only have you got to be funny and entertaining and, and make money and all those challenges, but you want to do something that doesn't just... I, I get the sense that if it just made people laugh, you'd be slightly disappointed because you, you want to make them laugh and think a bit. Yeah, I, I think so. I spent a house deposit in 2010 spending six months in New York City doing stand-up, trying to meet people from The Daily Show to go try and get a job on The Daily Show. I moved to America in 2015 to work for Al Jazeera as a sideways move to get to The Daily Show. I, uh, I then moved back in 2016 to try and do the same thing. And then I just um, you know came home and started my own Daily Show. So <laughs> that's where irrational fear comes in. You know, it's like, uh, back in 20, I started that in 2012 and um, Irrational Fear was designed to be like a platform for comedians to say something serious about the world. Um, and it was a way to bring catharsis to audiences, but also have a conversation about something big that at the time in 2012, not a lot of media were talking about, which is climate change. So Irrational Fear has been going for 10 years now and it's um, it's a really good vehicle for not only um, discussing the world, but you know highlighting climate justice in a way that's funny and engaging because people people's eyes glaze over when you talk about climate change that people don't know how to talk about it properly um and we take the saddest stories and basically laugh in their face for me that's exciting it's exciting to bundle a laugh with an idea i like to call it like an info bomb if i can bundle a fact with a joke it could explode in people's mind and maybe 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 make them think about an issue in a different way um or think about an issue at all thinking about an issue is all I can really hope to achieve. Um, making the Prime Minister go to uh, a climate talk is a wonderful achievement in its own right, which, you know, sure, uh, you know, maybe a billboard in New York City shamed him into going to uh, COP26, but, you know, could have also been the Queen saying, yeah, I'm very disappointed Scott Morrison is not coming. <laughs> and it could have also been a number of factors, but... Uh, it's really fun, like it's really fun to think, to entertain the idea that um, with the work I did with Irrational Fear last year, which was effectively harness the audience of the podcast to do something magnificent by initially only wanting one billboard in Glasgow to make fun of Australia's climate policies, to do the, do it at a scale that we did was just simply astonishing. So um, putting billboards all around the world and you know, making fun of Australia's poor record on climate um, was a real thrill to me. Now, pe- people say, oh, well, you didn't solve climate change. Well, that wasn't the idea. The idea was to globally signal to the world that Australians are not with the people who are representing us. So, so the monetizing thing, mate. Yeah, it's, um, it's hard, you know, like uh, podcasts don't pay for themselves. I was lucky enough to be rewarded with a fellowship for two years, um, 2020, right when the pandemic hit. Uh, I didn't know what the hell I was going to do, but this group called the Bertha Fellow 
uh, foundation chipped in and they paid me a huge wage for a, a year and they loved what I did so much and they was, well, I was so effective got like millions of hits online and increased the listeners by you know X, X amount and talking about climate change and they loved it so much they chipped in again and which took me through to the election end of the election which was amazing so I got to be extremely, extremely effective as a provocateur um, throughout the election but aside from that the power of the crowd to fund uh, some of it with Patreon is really handy. So I get to pay all of the expenses from folks out of Patreon and it's expensive to host, expensive to produce, expensive to do all the stuff that it takes to make a podcast and thanks to the Patreon supporters I get to do that. And I've never felt more secure right now. There's a wonderful Kiwi word. I have a coach. I've got three coaches and I, I as an individual comedian and entrepreneur i i seek out these coaches at different points to help me with blockages and there's this great guy called um uh, jason he's a kiwi coach he come he told me this maori word called tūranga weiwei and tūranga weiwei is a kiwi word for the place where i stand and it basically means here is where i am here i'm in principle here i am steady and from this point is my base and i can operate out of this space um and that's where that's the sense of home and the sense of feeling i have now with a rational fear i have a two-ranga weiwei with a rational fear it's this one it's this wonderful place that uh, is self-funded and i have i don't i'm not i'm not hustling for gigs i'm i'm using it as a base to not only be seen but help others be seen as well so uh, that third piece you know being able to be creative being able to make something but the third piece is being able to pay for it i was never really good at that and i've just i've just turned 41 and i'm just finding the peace in my in my financial stability right now and fuck it took a long time but i'm fucking glad it's there <laughs> oh well, wonderful mate. more power to your elbow I've got two further questions for you, mate, before we must wrap up. Um, and the first question, actually, I'll give you the choice of which particular version of it you would like, because you do such wonderful work and such an interesting uh, life to date. Uh, if, I, if I turn the telescope around and ask you uh, to talk to what do you feel is your biggest mistake or biggest regret? Choose one or the other. Probably um, probably mistake. Look, um I got fired from, you know, Al Jazeera um, for using the green screen to apply for a job at The Daily Show. So I, I just recorded a sketch on the green screen at, at work. And uh, and so I, the casting came up and I got an opportunity to cast for it. And so I, I recorded, a you know, a, what we would call now a self-tape um, on The Daily Show. But I used the work gear. I wouldn't do that again. I just recorded it. <laughs> on my camera at home rather than the green screen. Um, doesn't feel like a big mistake to me. I mean, no, but when you move your entire life over to another country. Right, it uh, blew it all up. Yeah, yeah, it blew it all up. So I had to come back and start again. I, then six months later, I was back in the States working for another media organisation. And maybe maybe that maybe that period was, a, was lost time for me. So 2015 to 2018 was really lost time in terms of um, my own career. So I really lost, you know, I feel like I lost a lot of time in my 30s, not only through my career but my personal life as well. I was just making bad choices and and uh, losing time is, um, is really annoying. So, so uh, wasting time uh, professionally and personally, do you want to speak to some of the personal stuff? Um, yeah, I mean, in America I... I was in a relationship that wasn't great and I really wanted to get out of. And I kind of ran down the clock on my 
bank account as quickly as possible to give me an escape out of that relationship. And I was like, oh, sorry, babe, I'm broke. I've got to go back to Australia. Uh, so I regret losing time and money <laughs> to, to, to do that. <laughs> but one of, the, one of the most creatively fulfilling projects happened straight after that. You know, I landed in Australia and then I became the head became the executive producer of Tonightly with Tom Ballard. So I went from running a team of four or five satirists to a team of 44 people running a big television show in Australia. And then that led to running at Home Alone together later on um, during the pandemic with Ray Martin. And that was very special. Um, the biggest regret for me, and it's something I struggle with all the time, and I'm trying to refocus all the time is my own fitness. I know you've been through a fitness journey. I think your work came to my brain first when you did your incredible TED talk about turning 40 and um, swimming in the ocean. And uh, and I'm I'm 40 now, I'm 41 now, and I'm, I'm the heaviest I've ever been. And, you know, being this weight is uh, hard for me because I have the story in my head that, you know, people don't put people on telly who, are, who look like me, 41-year-old fat men. They don't get a Guernsey. Of course, um, Karl Stefanovic is the exception. Um, but it's... It's one of those things where I've been this way up and down for so long. And I reckon I was at my fittest probably seven years ago. And uh, I was also really proud of myself seven years ago. And I think, you know, fitness for me is something I mm, I don't prioritise or haven't been because of injury and things like that. That's probably the, my number one regret of being, being fat for, or, or unfit for so long and just constantly remembering of those Precious five years when I was really fit, you know, climbing Kilimanjaro and, you know, doing CrossFit and stuff like that. They were, they were really good times for me. So the way I am now, the way I have been is, and it really, really prevents me from doing stuff in terms of my own brain. Like it just, I tell, I tell myself the, the story that I can't do stuff because of the way, you know, I am. Okay, so, so the, the second uh, uh, question I want to ask, the last one, is uh, who would you want to hear on Five My Life next and why? Oh, Brad Blanks is a friend of mine. Um, he's in New York City. He's got the most fascinating life. Uh, he lives this incredible playboy <laughs> life. Um, and he is just this Aussie bloke from Cobram. He is amazing. And he's one of my best mates. And I met him in Salt Lake City um, in 2002 at a party. And I think he ended up sleeping on my floor one of those days. And he, he, his story is fascinating. And I spoke about the Olympics. His story, his his whole career is based around the Olympics. When he was when he was eighteen, no, when he was twenty four, um, he just rang up a bunch of radio stations in America and asked to be their Australian correspondent for the Sydney Olympics. One of them said yes, and they asked him to come in immediately and do an interview on air. Uh, and he is this Aussie bloke, Cobram accountant, living in Bondi, trying to write sitcoms. And he flew over to America and he, he sat in this studio at WPLJ and the breakfast team at the time grilled him about why they should, you know, give him the job as, a, as an Australian correspondent. And they're like, so, so Brad, you, are, you, are you into sports? Yeah, I'm into sports. Have you ever uh, had any experience in television? No, no, no. Have you ever had any experience in radio? No, 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 no. You're hired. That's effectively <laughs> the, the job interview. But, yeah. 
Brad Blanks is my number one suggestion for you. Dan Illich, I really appreciate you coming in, uh, bringing in the Bill Clinton letter and uh, discussing your five on five my life. Thank you, mate. Nigel, and with all due respect, Yob Choi Matt. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.